welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Bruce Dunn, Canadian Bruce Wallace Dunn, responding to his choice for location after graduating Wheaton College, wrote, California, otherwise, no preference. As it happened, Dunn's career did not move him westward, but straight south to Peoria, Illinois. As road-weary vaudevillains used to say, if it'll play in Peoria, it'll play anywhere. There, Dunn's fruitful ministry played for decades, not because of chance, but as a result of, as he observed, many prayers, much planning, and sacrificial giving by hundreds of people. Today, Bruce Dunn presents a sermon on The Last Enemy to be Destroyed by Death. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25 and 26 declare he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Unhappily, unfortunately, holiday weekends are times when that last enemy reaps a grim harvest. It is a grim enemy that we have, but one that has to be reckoned with and has to be faced. And it is a happy thought to know that there is coming a day when that last enemy shall be destroyed. One of the more noted passages in English poetry is one written by the renowned Lord Byron, entitled Cain, where he describes Cain standing over the body of murdered Abel, astonished at death the first experience with death in the world. So new at that time, so old now. And yet it comes with new wonder and shock to every generation. Think of the awe, the surprise, the wonderment in the mind of Cain as he looked at the still body of his brother Abel. I want to ask three questions about this text of Scripture here today and attempt in the time we have to answer them. The first question is this, that if death is the last enemy, who is the first one, or the second one, or the third one, or the fourth one? Then the second question, why is it called an enemy? And the final question, how will it be destroyed? First of all, the first question then about this text and this subject, if death is the last enemy, who is the first one? 
I think as we examine the pages of God's Word, we can discover that there are at least four major enemies that we have to contend with as far as man and particularly as our spiritual lives are concerned. First and foremost, we would have to put a person, the enemy of our souls, our adversary, who as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The one who is called by the Lord Jesus, the prince of this age, the God of this world, in whose lap the whole world lieth, the Apostle John said. Who is the father of children, Jesus remarked one time, and he said the tares, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares are the children of the wicked one. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do, he said in John chapter 8. He is the one who is the deceiver, the accuser, the adversary, the sifter of God's people. Satan has desire to have you that he might sift you as wheat, Jesus said to Peter. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And so our, one of our principal adversaries who never rests and never leaves us alone, or if he does, it is only for a season, out to destroy our faith, to cause us to distrust God, to cause us to murmur and complain and grumble when things do not go right as if God has forgotten us to always cast doubt in our minds about the scriptures with his yea hath God said. Did he really say that? Can you believe what he has told you? That enemy that is called the dragon, who is constantly dogging the steps of every true believer in Christ, deceiving the kings of the earth, the Bible tells us, in two principal areas, I may suggest, in the area of religion, raising up false teachers, false prophets, causing people to distort the word of God, to put it out of focus, to major in minors and minor in majors, anything at all to distract and to divert people's attention and minds from the truth. Surely he is an enemy. And someday, the Bible says, he shall be cast into the lake of fire bound prior to that temporarily for a short period of time, but finally totally put out of business. Surely he is one of our enemies. But the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now a second enemy that we have that the Word of God speaks about is, is closer to us even than the one we've mentioned. The Bible depicts that our own human nature turns out to be an enemy, a fifth column within us. That which Paul calls sometimes the flesh, which responds altogether too easily to the appeals of the world. Galatians 6 says the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and they are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. 
The Lord Jesus in Matthew 15 spoke of the fact that not from our environment, not from our education or our lack of it, but from within the heart of man, from his own nature, comes lusts, fornication, adulteries, riots, you name it. Wars and fightings that come from within our own members that arise out of a fallen human nature with which, which we must constantly contend during all our pilgrimage in this world. It's an enemy. One of the fine illustrations I heard once used by Dr. Carl Armerding, the father of the president of Wheaton, he was speaking on the text, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. He told about walking through a zoo one day and looking at the animals through their cages and going by a cage where he read that the title, the name of the animal was one of the fiercest wild cats that there is. And he walked on his way and then he heard a commotion behind him and turned around to see a keeper going right in the cage with that animal. Seemingly unprotected, no gun, no whip, no chair. And he walked in there and put his foot and pushed the animal out of the way roughly and so on and went about his business in the cage. And Dr. Armitage said, I, I went back to see if I was seeing right. I'd been told this is one of the wildest animals there is. And he said, I asked the keeper, how come you can go in there and push him around, kick him around like that? And the keeper said, oh, he said, he ain't got no teeth. <laughs> he said, said, he hasn't had a good meal for weeks, so on. Well, he went to make the application that inside all of us there is an untamed wild cat. The only way to deal with it is to starve it. Never feed it. Keep it weak so you can kick it around. As the text says, don't buy any groceries for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. We used to use the word provisions in a, as a term for groceries some time ago. Don't buy any groceries for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And the Bible tells us that we have in us these two natures, the new divine nature given and brought in the person of the Holy Spirit, and that old natural man, the flesh, and each one striving and seeking preeminence, and the one you feed will be the one that is the strongest and will prevail in your life. And the Christian has that constant battle between these two natures within that come to pass the moment we are born again into the family of God. Don't buy any groceries for the flesh. Human nature turns out to be a, an enemy. Not the last one, but indeed one of the early ones that we experience the moment we become a Christian. Then there is a third enemy that the Word of God suggests. Spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. It speaks of the body. Paul says, I pummel, I beat. And the, it's a boxing term he uses there. I pummel my body and keep it in subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disapproved and put on the shelf and become unusable by God. Indeed, sometimes the body can turn out to be an enemy. 
James Russell Lowell suggested that a good epitaph over his grave would be this. Here lies that part of James Russell Lowell which kept him from doing well. There's some truth in that. The appetites, the desires, the lusts of the body clamoring for attention, clamoring for comforts sometimes, beyond what we need, reaching out with great ambition for things and forgetting that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Fleshly desires reaching out for gratification. Pride always ever to rise within us. Paul says, it's necessary that I learn to keep the body in subjection. And he said, I buffet it, I pummel it, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disapproved of God. The body, through the afflictions that come to it sometimes, can be the channel and the instrument of despondency and discouragement. I had an interesting experience just a week ago Sunday night in my church. There's a young man who became a member of our church who comes in a wheelchair. He's there very faithfully all the time. And I never did know the particulars of how he came to be in that wheelchair until a week ago Sunday night. And I preached a message about the man on the bed carried to Jesus and lowered down through the roof in the, in, the, in the presence of Jesus and how he was healed and received even prior to his healing the forgiveness of his sins. And as a very last thought in the message, at the very end of the message, I said, I'd like to close with this and suggest to you that that man probably all the rest of his days Thank God for every day and every moment that he had the palsy. He never would have been brought to Jesus. It is perhaps true that he never would have experienced the forgiveness of sins. It was his grief and his sorrow and his heartache and his physical affliction that stirred sympathy in the hearts of his friends and stirred a hunger in his own heart so that together they brought him to Jesus. I was out in the vestibule of the church right after the service, and here comes that fellow in his wheelchair as fast as he could make it go. He came down. Boy, he said, Pastor, you were right on tonight. You were right on. You were saying the truth there tonight. And then what a testimony he gave me. He said, I thank God every day for this wheelchair, he said, and for the automobile accident I was in. He said, that made me think about Christ and, and changed my whole life. And he said, I'm like that man, the palsy. I praise the Lord every day. Someday, he said, I'm trusting God. I'll get out of this thing. But meanwhile, I'm thanking him every day. And through this, I came to know Christ. It can happen that way, but too often and more often than not, it can come, become the enemy as it becomes an instrument of depression and oppression and heartache and unbelief and bitterness against God instead of turning to him. The body. And then a fourth enemy, the world. I remember years ago hearing of one of our professors at uh, 
at college at Wheaton. I, I never have been able to confront him with this personally to give it confirmed, but I have it on good authority that it's so, that one of his habits was, as his little children were growing up, to line them up at the door before they went out uh, in the morning to school and say, all right, let's hear it. And they would say together this text, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in, in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And with that farewell, off they went to school. <laughs> not a bad reminder every morning. All that is in this world system, with its threefold appeal to the flesh, to the eye, to the pride of life, can destroy people and is destroying them and can wound Christians and make them ineffective and cause them to be overcome by the world and surfeited by it and, and made tragically unusable by God. It is an enemy. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. In previous references to him, he called him a fellow laborer and a fellow soldier. And then I'm sure with, with an ache in his heart, his last word about him was to say, He has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And let's face it. There is a great deal in this world that is attractive to the flesh and appeals to the baser desires of human nature. And since Christians still have to contend with a human nature that is prone to wander from God, it is an area of battle for every one of us. And the world turns out oft times, the world's system, to be an enemy. And the Bible says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We must take care. Let me come to my second question. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Why is death called an enemy? Well, in the limited time we have, I can just mention some and take a moment or two on others. But let me suggest six reasons why it's called an enemy. Number one, of course, it is a source of fear and bondage. Hebrews 2.15. Who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And anything that is a large contributor to fear that will paralyze us into inaction and, and make us uh, uh, unfit to serve the Lord and incapable of doing our best is an enemy. It's an enemy of all mankind. And occasionally I have found professing believers who still seem to be plagued with this fear of death from which God has delivered us through Jesus Christ you see then it is called an enemy also because it is the bearer of sorrow 
under the best of circumstances. It's a grim business. I think of David at the loss of Absalom, when one might have expected him almost to feel just a little tinge of, uh, of gladness that that rascal is gone. He's been a thorn in my flesh. He's betrayed me as a son. Oh, no. David, in great mourning and weeping, crying, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, my son, Absalom. It was a bearer of deep sorrow, and it always will be. You cannot have the, the, the twine, the, the affections wrapped around us for years of time and lose a loved one and not feel it. It hurts. It's a bearer of sorrow. Old Jacob, thinking that Joseph was dead and that Benjamin was very apt to be, bowed down in grief, saying, all these things are against me. It's the bearer of sorrow. It becomes an enemy. Thirdly, it is the one thing that brings a terrible separation. A part of sorrow, I grant you. And how cruel this separation can be, whether it is temporary or permanent. Aaron Burr, a notorious name in American history, after the wreck of his whole fortune, his wealth, and his reputation, still had nevertheless his most cherished joy and possession, his beautiful and talented daughter, Theodosia, her name was. She became the wife of the governor of South Carolina, and in 1813 she embarked at Charleston on a boat to sail up to New York, and the boat never arrived. And for years after, in the vicinity of the Battery in New York, an old man could be seen, broken, walking there and gazing wistfully down the harbor as if still cherishing the hope that his daughter would arrive home. Separation. Now for the Christian, thank God, for a family united in Christ, it is a very temporary thing. For the day is coming when we shall be caught up together with them who have preceded us in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. A very temporary separation, and yet at the time that it happens, it comes with some shock and with some tears and with some heartache and with some loneliness and a terrible readjustment of schedule and lifestyle and everything else when God has taken one. Death is an enemy even though it's on a temporary basis. But then what about on the permanent basis? When someone leaves who never trusted the Savior, who has never come to Christ, has never experienced God's forgiveness, and is suddenly snatched away, what a grim business and what a terrible enemy death turns out to be with no prospect 
to many happy reunion at the feet of Jesus. There is a fourth reason why we call death an enemy, and that is because it is the end of opportunity. The end of opportunity. I had the privilege of having a fine, godly mother and father, both of them. And in one of my mother's old Bibles, I, after she was gone and it was given to me, and I looked, opened it up and I saw some quotations she had taken from some sermon she heard, I'm sure. And it said this, We have all eternity to celebrate our victories but only a few short hours in which to win them. That's a good statement. We have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short hours in which to win them. It is the end of opportunity. Oh, how we ought to think about that. How foolish we are sometimes to hold unforgiveness in our hearts or malice or bitterness toward others and thus cripple ourselves for being used of God. There's something very final about death. The end of opportunity. If you're going to do something for Christ, you must do it now. If you're going to ask forgiveness... Make an apology that God has been struggling with you to make. You better make it now. The end of opportunity. The end of the opportunity for good works. The end of the opportunity for righting wrongs. If there's some nice things you should be saying, get them said. I remember when my mother and father died within eight weeks of each other. The first death, my mother was not unexpected. It had been leading up to it for a couple of years. And eight weeks later, with a coronary, my dad was gone, so suddenly it came as a tremendous shock. And I remember the day before the funeral, I went up to the funeral home and was in the room there where his earthen vessel lay, all by myself, and I paced up and down the room, and I prayed, and I had a lump in my throat, and I said a lot of things to the Lord and some of them were why didn't I why wasn't I better do it I never really got to know him as an adult I didn't realize that see I went away to college as a 17 year old kid came over here to the states from Toronto and then when these funerals came and all these scores if not hundreds of people came to visit visitation night and and so many that my dad had brought over from the old country and had found jobs for them, helped so many people. It just dawned upon me what I had missed. That I'd only known my dad as a kid and a teenager and I never really got to know him as an adult. And I felt cheated. I really did. I felt cheated. And I walked up and down in that funeral parlor that day and thanked God for him and for his trust in the Savior that I would see him again, but also with a deep feeling that, Lord, I could have said more and I could have done more and I could have been better. But the opportunity is gone. That's another reason why death is an enemy. Then, number five, sometimes it is an instrument of judgment. 1 Corinthians 11. For this cause, some of you are sickly and some have fallen asleep. There was a chastening act of God in the church at Corinth. So some people were actually taken out of the world. 
for their disorders at the Lord's table. Ananias and Sapphira is another story. It is an instrument of judgment. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. So says God's word. An instrument of judgment. Sixthly, the entrance to judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after death, the judgment. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, my time is all gone. Let me just quickly, in part at least, answer the third question. How is it destroyed? Well, of course, it was mortally wounded at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It is a defeated foe now. Its final destruction is at a future day. But because he lives, we shall live also. The whole business of death has been put in a different setting, in a different light now, since Jesus left behind him that empty tomb. Secondly, it will be further damaged at his coming for his church because death is going to be cheated of many victims when Jesus comes again. We shall not all sleep in death, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We shall be snatched away out of this world like Elijah, like Enoch, never to experience the grim business of dying. It will be further damage there. It will be temporarily in an ascendant state during the period of tribulation in this world when death will very much ride in the saddle again as judgments come. And its final destruction, Revelation 20, verse 14, when death and hell, death is cast into hell and it comes to an end. The Bible even speaks of a day, Revelation 9, 6, a day coming in the world so dark that it says that in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. There will be such judgments come upon the earth. But what a wonderful comfort to know the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For you and for me, that item is wonderfully taken care of already. Sudden death means sudden glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what a day it will be when the victory in its most final and ultimate sense will be taken care of by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us bow in prayer. Father, bless to our hearts these considerations of thy word and thy truth this morning. Continue to be with us throughout the day. May our hearts be drawn closer to thee. May we love thee more and serve thee better for having spent these hours on these grounds this week. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening 
to Bruce Dunn. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.